The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. When Moses first came into Pharaoh, Pharaoh said in verse 2 of chapter 5, Who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And then Yahweh, the Lord, has been answering his question throughout the book of Exodus as he will answer it throughout history. And so in today's passage, we see God finishing the work that he started. Remember in chapter 6, God said, Now, now they will know that I am the Lord. Let me encourage you right up front, brothers and sisters, God always finishes what he starts. God always finishes what he starts. And here with these 10 plagues, that is what God is doing. In merciful patience, but yet in surety of the completion of his word, God is going to reveal that he alone is the Lord. And he's going to do so while he delivers and redeems his people, but judges righteously those who stubbornly oppose him. God saves through great acts of judgment. And the plagues that we'll read about today are the great acts of judgment, the signs and wonders that show Yahweh's unique power, but also display his righteous judgment on stubborn rebellion. Throughout the book, in fact, God will repeatedly say that he is doing this so that he alone will exclusively be seen as the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 7, he says that about the Israelites. Chapter 7, verse 5, the Egyptians need to know that he is the Lord. And chapter 14, in verse 4, 17, and 18, God brings them out saying, I will get glory over Pharaoh because the Lord alone is great and greatly to be praised. And so in the Exodus, God shows that he alone is worthy of worship. And he does that by saving his people according to his promise and yet righteously judging those who oppose him. I said something last week that I'd like to begin with this week. There is no question as to whether or not God will be glorified. God will glorify his name. The question is whether or not we will find joy and trust in his glory or resistance and sorrow. Remember, at the end of the book of Genesis, God has made his name great in Egypt through Joseph. Joseph, who loves and trusts God enough to say, what you intended for evil, in the same act, God intended for good. But now in the book of Exodus, God will again make his name great. But this time with the stubbornness and the eventual sorrow of Pharaoh. So this morning, I want to personalize the sermon right up front. Because the question Pharaoh asked is one that's asked commonly in our culture. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Let us consider this morning, even if we have perhaps walked in with a heart harder than we thought or a conscience more calloused than we recognized. To ask who is the Lord that I should obey him is in fact endemic to our cultural narrative. In America, we think of ourselves as sovereign selves. We once thought of ourselves as image bearers of the God who made us. We now think of ourselves as gods who can make anything in our own image. In fact, in the Declaration of Independence, it assumes that any rights we have have come from a creator above us. 
But in 1948, when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was written, no mention of God's name or any God at all was given. Because at that point, God, sovereignty, had moved to human. In 1992, the United States Supreme Court wrote in its opinion on Planned Parenthood versus Casey these revealing words. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, one's own concept of meaning, one's own concept of the universe, and one's own concept of the human life. Therefore, the question that is asked by Pharaoh, who is the Lord that I should obey him, has become popularly accepted in our culture. This week I read of six commandments that reign in our culture in self-sovereignty. Here are the six. Number one, your mind is the source and standard of truth. Hashtag, the answers are within. Number two, your emotions are authoritative. Never let anyone question or challenge your feelings. Hashtag, follow your heart. Number three, you are sovereign, so bend the universe to your will. Hashtag, live your truth. Number four, you are supreme, so act according to your own chief ends. Hashtag, you only live once. Number five, you are the summum bonum, the standard of goodness. Never let anyone challenge your living. Hashtag, never change. And number six, you are the creator, so craft your own identity and purpose. Hashtag authenticity. We should ask about our culture, how is it actually working to make ourselves sovereign? When we make ourselves the standard of truth, we slowly go crazy. When we make ourselves the standard of satisfaction, we become miserable wrecks. When we make ourselves the standard of goodness and justice, we become obnoxiously self-righteous. When we seek glorification, we become inglorious. The reality is everyone knows that to make yourself the almighty is empty because we were made for something infinitely more awesome than ourselves. Don't you think that's why 35,000 people a year go to Mount Everest? 4.5 million go to the Grand Canyon? Three and a half million go to Yosemite and 30 million go to Niagara Falls. We all know we're made for something infinitely more glorious than us. And here's what it is. Psalm 89, verse six and seven. Who is like Yahweh? A God greatly to be feared, awesome above all those around him. I encourage you to memorize this week, Psalm 89, verse 7. Who is like Yahweh, awesome above all those around him? And so these 10 plagues show that Yahweh is awesome above all those around him. Now, normally, we try to look at every single detail in the text, but today we are going to try to look at nine of the 10 plagues. And so we're going to go a little bit quickly. Hopefully on your own reading, you'll read all the details. But today, 
I pray that the benefit of height will help us to catch some themes we otherwise would miss. If you're standing at the top of a ladder, you see the ground a little differently. If you're on the ninth story floor, you see things on the street you had previously not noticed. Today, we'll go a little bit faster, and therefore I think we'll see some connections, but I pray you'll read it further on your own. You might be thinking, Josh, why are you doing just the first nine (laughs) and not all ten? Here's the answer. The, The plagues actually have a pattern. So there are three sets of three, and then they climax in the tenth. Do you know in the Bible when it says things like six things the Lord does hate, yea, seven? That's what's happening here. There are three sets of three, and they culminate at the tenth, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next Sunday. And here's how the cycle works. In each of the three sets, in the first plague, God sends Moses to Pharaoh in the morning. In the second God meets Pharaoh in the palace. And in the third, the plague comes unannounced. And every one of the plagues ends with a description of Pharaoh's hardening heart. If you've read the book of Judges, you may know that it's a cycle that repeats itself. But not only is it a cycle, it's a spiral that gets worse. That's what happens in the ten plagues. They cycle and they spiral And in each spiral, we see that Pharaoh's heart is even harder and that Yahweh reigns unchallenged, unrivaled, and undefeated. So now look with me, please, in God's word, Exodus 7. We'll read the first plague pretty much all the way through because then the cycle will repeat itself and we can go a little faster. Exodus 7, verse 14 is the first plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, because it's the first of the three sets, as he is going out to the water. Stand at the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me. Remember, it's a battle over whose people they are. They're Yahweh's people, and they should be rescued to serve him. But so far you have not obeyed, because in fact, the Lord is sovereign, not you, Pharaoh. Verse 17, we're reminded of the purpose of this all. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. So in this first plague, God turns the water of the Nile to blood. Verse 19, the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters, over the rivers, the canals, the ponds, all the pools, that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Let me point out some things we should learn from the first plague before we go any further. First, we should learn that God is going to show Pharaoh who really stinks, (laughs) I'm not saying that merely to be silly. In the plagues, God will have the Nile stink, he'll have the frog stink, and he'll have the cattle stink. But do you remember why? Remember in Exodus 5 when God first sent Moses to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. What did Pharaoh do? He made things worse for the Israelites. He made them have bricks without straw, but still meet the same quota. And then what did the leaders of the Israelites say to God's servant, Moses? They said to Moses, Moses, you have made us, do you remember? Stink. 
in the eyes of Pharaoh. And now God is going to let Pharaoh know, oh, you think you can make my servants stink? Wait till I'm done with you. (laughs) I'll take care of the river. I'll take care of the frogs. I'll take care of the cattle. You won't get away from this stench anywhere. God is going to show him who stinks. God is going to do something else. He's going to show that his power is a power unique to him. Look with me in verse 20. Moses and Aaron did what the Lord commanded. The Nile turns to blood. Verse 21, the fish died, it stunk. But now look in verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Now remember, we pointed out last week that the ultimate God that was encrusted on the crown of Pharaoh was the cobra, the serpent, the snake, God's enemy, Satan, we might say. The magicians do have some access to some limited dark powers. Here I'll simply point out, unfortunately I've read some people who are very, very intelligent, but unfortunately have lost simple faith in what the Bible says, and they question whether or not this is actually a miracle. Let me point out some things that make it clear that this is a miracle. First, the word changed is the common word for metamorphosis or transformation in Hebrew. And the word blood, dom, is the word always used for blood. But there's another thing. Did you notice at the end of verse 19 that even if you had a bowl in your house, it turned to blood? Obviously, then, this is not watercoloring. This is an actual miracle that God did. And those who were able to imitate were able to imitate in part, probably with water that was reserved in the palace or somewhere like that. God is doing a miracle because God can do what only God can do. But notice when they imitate the miracle, all they can do is reflect it. They can't undo it. Did you know that Satan can only destroy? He can't give life. (laughs) Satan can only make things worse. He can never make them better. Throughout these plagues, it'll be shown that God alone has unmatched power and God alone has power to give good. James 1 tells us every good and perfect gift comes from above the heavenly father of lights. So we pick up again in verse 22. Pharaoh's response to the reflection and the imitation of his magicians is to remain hard in heart. The text says he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house. He did not take even this to heart. Meanwhile, all the Egyptians are digging along the Nile for water to drink, for they can't drink the water of the Nile. Notice verse 25, seven full days passed. So for seven days, their attention is arrested. Let me press further why God destroying the Nile is so important. The Nile River was their transportation. That's how they moved goods from anywhere around the country to where it needed to go. It formed the irrigation system that grew their crops. It was their water supply. It was their primary food supply because fish was their staple diet. It gave fertile topsoil on their annual floods. The Greek historian Herodotus wrote this, the Egypt that the Greeks sail to is an Egypt granted by the Nile River. The Nile River was everything to Egypt, and God, in one foul swoop, destroyed it. In fact, God tells us in Numbers 33.4 that part of the purpose of the plagues is to execute judgment on false gods. One of the false gods in Egypt was Osiris, Nu, and Hapi. These were gods that they looked to as makers of life, and then one day God turned it to blood. What does that mean for us now? 
As present-day Americans, you might think, well, I don't have anything to do with the Nile, but we should be honest that we may follow the NASDAQ the way they followed the Nile. We may look to gods that we have given different names to, but that we trust for our provision, for our sustenance, for our ability to plan for a future, for our security. Isn't it interesting that when God brings the Israelites out, what does he provide for them every day? Manna. What's the lesson? Before, when they're in Egypt, they think they have control, they have security, they have power. When he brings them out, they depend on him. They can't even gather a day in advance. This is why Jesus tells us to pray for our daily bread. In this first plague, it is made clear that the things that we think give us security can be immediately taken away. And when Yahweh takes them, there is nowhere else to go, and in fact, there never was. So the first plague is the Nile, but now the second plague. Look in chapter 8, verse 1. We'll read just portions of it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague. And this time he does use the word plague rather than sign or wonder. The Hebrew word in the gap is the term used for striking a blow or a punch. Behold, I will strike a blow on all your country with frogs. The Nile then is swarmed with frogs. Their homes are swarmed with frogs. Their ovens, their kneading bowls, everywhere they look are frogs. Verse 7, the worthless magicians come through again. The magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. They again only add to the terror that has already been wrought. In this second plague, God shows the disgusting nature of sin, but he shows something else, that sin has a ubiquitous reality. Charles Spurgeon, when preaching on this text, wrote this, as the true God is everywhere present around us, in our bedchambers and in our streets, so shall Pharaoh find every place with what he chooses to call divine. In Pharaoh's day, there was a god called Hect that had the body of a frog that the Egyptians worshipped. For that reason, the Egyptians deified frogs and refused to kill them. You get the irony. (laughs) Now there are frogs all over their body, and according to their false religion, they can't do anything about them. Here then, God has turned on their head the very thing that they had given all their hope to. Now it continues. Look in Exodus 8. Verse 9, Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you, because Pharaoh had asked for deliverance from these frogs. Moses continues, when should I plead for you so that the frogs will be cut off from you and the houses be left in the Nile? Look at Pharaoh's answer in verse 10. Pharaoh said, tomorrow. Who in the world chooses to wait a day? (laughs) You have frogs everywhere and you decide to spend another night with them. This reminds us that sin clouds our reason and arrogance always outstrips intelligence. Pharaoh has only become harder and that has made him more foolish. We see now that when Pharaoh asks for relinquishment, it is not repentance. Look at Moses' continuance in verse 10. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know there's no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will go away. 
Verse 12, Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. Moses cried to the Lord as he had agreed. Verse 13, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died immediately. They gathered them together and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart. Did you know there's a wide difference between remorse and repentance? We'll see this throughout the passage, but if you just want the immediate relinquishment of your circumstances, that is not the same as humble trust and obedience. In fact, Pharaoh wouldn't even approach the Lord through prayer. He wanted Moses to plead for him because he only wanted to be released. This brings us to the third plague, which is gnats. So now Exodus 8, look in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. This third plague reminds us that the Lord creates from dust. In Genesis, we saw that's how God made human beings. Can Satan follow this one? Look in verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. They cannot give life from dust. Verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. The magicians are done trying at this point. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The magicians are speaking closer to King David than Pharaoh. David wrote in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Well, the plagues intensify further. And now we come to the fourth plague. So Exodus 8, verse 20. And you'll notice now something new that God is doing. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, because we're now on the second set of plagues, and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out of the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you, your servants, your people, your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies." just want to make a comment on the gnats and the flies, because I think each plague does say something about God. Why gnats? Why flies? And I think the answer is because God is the God of the big and the small, and he can use any size to humble us. Charles Spurgeon wrote, when it pleases God by his judgments to humble men, he is never at a loss for means. God can use lions or lice, famines or flies. In the army of God, there are weapons of every kind, from the stars in their courses down to caterpillars in their host. Have you ever been humbled by the Lord? Has he ever worked in you? Did you respond like Pharaoh? Did you respond like Nebuchadnezzar? God has an infinite array of means that he can use when it's time to humble us. Now, God promised something in Exodus 6, and I want to remind you of it. If you were here last week, remember when I pointed out that God said, Yahweh, I am. And then he said, Yahweh, I am. And in the middle, he had seven I wills. This is in Exodus 6, verses 6 and following. 
in the seven I wills, you might remember I pointed out that they first talk about the fact that God will redeem, but then they talk about the fact that God will adopt. He will make his people distinctively his. So notice we had three plagues that seemed to just happen indiscriminately. But now in the middle three plagues, they're discriminated. Because God doesn't only show that he can save, he saves and adopts his people. Look now in Exodus 8, verse 22. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Brothers and sisters, it is vital that you understand that throughout this lifetime and clearly throughout eternity, there is a division between God's people and those who are not God's people. God's people may be in the world, but they're never of the world. And at the end of this life, God separates sheep from goats, wheat from chaff. In fact, by the end, this will be an even clearer theme. God will say this in Exodus 19. You are a treasured possession among the peoples. The whole earth is mine, but you are to me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. In fact, when Israel sins and God talks about how they deserve punishment and Moses intercedes on their behalf in chapter 33, Moses says this, is it not because you are with us that we are distinct from every other people on the place of the earth? The word holy means set apart. God sets apart his own. And this will now be seen throughout the rest of the plagues because God has made a people his, those who trust in his promise and his provision. So look now at the fifth plague. We're now in Exodus 9. Exodus 9, and we see the fifth plague. Notice throughout these, only God, when he speaks, is at action. Whatever God says happens immediately. Now in the fifth plague, the Lord says to Moses, go to Pharaoh again in the palace. Let my people go. But now, verse 3, Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with this very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. The Lord will set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptian died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Again, I remind you where we began. God will glorify his name. The question is, will we receive him with joy and trust or with heart and heart and sorrow? I want to make sure this morning you understand how important that is for you personally. You are not born a child of God. You must be born again to be in the family of God. John 1 says this, as many as received him, to them God gave the right or the authority to become the sons and daughters of God. Friend, have you ever called on the name of the Lord to be saved? Are you his people or are you outside of his people? 1 John 5 says, whoever has the son has life, but whoever does not have the son shall not see life. The wrath of God remains on him. Nothing could be more important for you personally, eternally, than knowing if you're God's people or not God's people. But if you are God's people, I want to remind you that the saving work God has begun, he will complete. He's going to finish pulling his people out. 
So the plagues continue now with the sixth. Exodus 9, God sends in verse 8 another plague, and this is a painful plague. It's the plague of boils and sores breaking out on people. Verse 10, we read Moses through in the air, and it became boils breaking out on sores on man and beast. Notice now verse 11, and the magicians could not stand before Moses. I hope you appreciate the irony. Previously, Moses could not stand before Pharaoh. Now the Egyptians cannot even stand up before God's servant. So it shall be in the end. Do you remember how it ends? Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the end, everyone falls before God's appointed ruler and redeemer. Sin affects all of creation, and so both man and beast are harmed. You remember how the book of Jonah ends. The Lord is concerned for these people and this cattle. You remember Romans 8, where creation groans under the curse of sin. The curse of sin affects everything. We foolishly think we can reject God and have human flourishing. That is impossible. Without him, creation falls. Exodus 9 now builds to the seventh plague, which is hail. Verse 14 of Exodus 9, if you're following along. For this time I will send my plagues on you yourself and on your servants, God says to Pharaoh, and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Remember, that's the reason these are happening. Now notice God could have done this in one plague. Look in verse 15. For by now I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. You would have all been cut off from the earth. Why are there 10? Because that's how merciful God is. Verse 16. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people And will not let them go. Can I remind you of something? Um, Pharaoh's playing checkers and God is playing chess. At the end of Genesis, God has brought the people to Egypt through Joseph for the very reason of fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham way in the past when he said, I'm going to build a people in a place and you're going to plunder them after 400 years of slavery. God has this all planned out. We need this reminder because sometimes we think the world is falling apart and it's chaos and we have terrible rulers. Don't forget, the world is a platform for God's glory. That's why they're in Egypt. They're in Egypt so that God can glorify his name. That's why we're here. Things are going to be chaotic on the journey, but in the end, God glorifies his name. And he uses the rejection of his enemies towards that end. The wrath is increasing as the stubbornness is increasing. But sometimes you even realize how wayward your leaders are. (laughs) Look in Exodus 9, verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among even the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. See, at some point you realize even my leader has lost his mind and I'm done following him. It also shows God's grace, right? Sometimes people accuse God of being unfair or partial, but notice he is willing to be gracious to any who repent and show trust in his word. Verse 21, whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. 
And notice again how God distinguishes. Look in verse 25. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were and anyone else who took shelter there was there no hail. But now we come to the eighth plague. Turn to Exodus 10, please. Exodus 10 is the eighth plague. And then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know I am the Lord. Is it not clear that this is all happening for the glory of Yahweh, that all will know who he is? Verse 3, Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself? Notice it ends immediately if you will simply humble yourself. God now brings locust. All these plagues have a purpose. They're destroying the economy. They're destroying everything they've had their faith in, destroying everything they've had trust in. They also are, I think, one by one, defaming all of their false gods. Verse 7, now even the servants with hard hearts are saying, how long is this man going to be a snare to us? Let him go. Notice they were able to say that. Verse 8, so Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them, go, serve the Lord your God. Sounds good so far, right? He's going to let him go. But he's not done talking. Which ones are to go? Notice Pharaoh's trying to negotiate. <laughs> Moses said, we will all go with our young, with our old. We'll go with our sons and our daughters and our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But Pharaoh said to him, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Are you noticing the theme that I pointed out before that remorse is not the same as repentance? In chapter eight, Pharaoh told Moses, well, you can go a little ways. Let me remind you of two things that I think we learned from this. Here's one that is important for us as believers. Brothers and sisters, when the Lord saves, he doesn't save in part, he saves in whole. The Lord's deliverance is not a little, it is all. If you don't grasp that, I don't think you'll have hope when you're battling your sin and you think you can't overcome it. I also think you'll have no hope when you feel like your life doesn't have a secured end. The Lord never saves in part. He saves in full. God's demand is not that his people have a little liberty, but that he completely brings them out. If it's not complete deliverance, it's not actually deliverance. This is why Moses rightly sticks to the word of the Lord. There is no negotiation. We're not leaving a little and we're not leaving anybody behind. God's bringing all of us out all the way. But there's a second thing that this makes clear. That because God is Lord, his word cannot be negotiated. Because God is Lord, his word cannot be negotiated. There is no, well, okay, I accept this part. I accept this part. I like some of the words of the Lord. I like some of the ethics of Jesus. I like some of the Sermon on the Mount. No, no, no. Jesus is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. All of his word must be received. 
Jeanette Howard in her book, Out of Egypt, says this, compromising the word of God is always a backward step. And yet she says, even still we hear compromise reaching our ears. Certainly you can be a Christian, just don't be fanatical. She concludes, but there is no place for compromise. God cannot share your heart with the world. Only a complete break, leaving Egypt fully behind, is what God calls. Pharaoh's remorse is clearly not repentance. Look down in verse 16. We're still in Exodus chapter 10. Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Again, sounds good. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once. I think the ESV translates it poorly. He's saying, forgive this one time I sinned. You got me this time. All right, maybe this one time I was in the wrong. But then notice quickly what he really wants. Plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. See, this is the difference between remorse or regret and repentance. When we only have remorse or regret, we think maybe we made a mistake this time. We don't confess our complete sinfulness. Moses doesn't, or Pharaoh, excuse me, Pharaoh doesn't bring up the fact that in chapter one, he's drowning baby boys in the Nile. Doesn't feel bad about that. He just thinks maybe this one time he went a little too far. That's not repentance. That's remorse. Furthermore, Pharaoh's concern is simply to alleviate consequences, not to get right with God. That's the difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse just wants to get out of jail. Repentance wants to get right with God. Notice verse 18 then. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. The Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts, drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left. And yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. Well, now we come to our ninth and culminating plague. And so we're in Exodus 10. And look with me in God's word in verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. See, in the the end, rejecting God leaves you in darkness, but God rescues and brings people into the glorious light of the kingdom of his dear son. But then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Again, we see him vacillating. Your little ones may go with you, but he negotiates again. Only you let your flocks, your herds, you know, the value that you have, let all that stay behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have our sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Praise God. Moses is firm with God's word. Not a hoof shall be left behind. We must take of them to serve the Lord our God. We do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you will die. Moses said to him, as you say, I will not see your face again. Do you know how significant this is? 
Remember when our brother read in chapter seven, God said to, to Moses, I will make you representing like God to Pharaoh. So when Pharaoh's saying, I'm done with you, Moses, he's saying, I'm done with you, God. I don't ever want to see your face again. I want nothing to do with you. If I see your face again, you will die. See, this reminds us of a very important thing. The Lord delivers, but first the Lord must deliver us from the captivity of our own soul. In O four thousand songs, tongues to sing, the fourth verse says this, his love my heart has captive made, his captive would I be? For he was bound and scourged and died, my captive soul to free. See, it's not just about delivering the Israelites from bondage, it's about delivering us from the captivity of our own sinful soul. But do you know the shocking twist of the gospel? Do you know how God delivers sinners from darkness? He puts it on his own son. On the cross, in the middle of the day, darkness is felt by the Son of God. The ninth and culminating plague that is meant to punish Pharaoh is placed on the perfectly innocent Son of God who takes the place of stubborn sinners if we will simply trust in him. And that ninth plague of darkness is followed by the tenth when the Lamb of God is slain. So also the cross's darkness ends with the Lamb of God saying, it is finished. This is why the fifth verse of O for a Thousand Tongues says this, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the followest clean. His blood availed for me. You just want to cry out to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, look to the lamb who is slain to take away your sin. Why let darkness befall you when the lamb will take your place? The fact that the lamb would take the sinner's place is especially amazing because the plagues show that God saves through judgment, but it also shows God's signs and wonders and might. You remember when Jesus is on earth and he's with seasoned fishermen on a boat and there's a storm. These are seasoned sailors and they are deathly afraid. And what is Jesus doing? Do you remember? He's sleeping. They wake him up and they say, oh, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus stands up and rebukes the winds and the waves and says, peace be still. And there's a great calm. And then what do the disciples do? They're filled with fear. What manner of man is this that even the winds and waves obey him? Can you imagine on the cross, what manner of man is this that he would give his life voluntarily? See, this morning, I want to remind you that the plagues are opportunities for the softening of our heart. The climactic destruction of our sin, its penalty, and its effect on our life is destroyed by Jesus on the cross. The final sign of God's might is displayed in Jesus in the resurrection. All authority on heaven and earth is given to our Lord. So this morning... Let us not say, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Let us not scoff at the Lord of Lords or attempt to dethrone God Almighty while placing a crown of self-sovereignty on our own head. Let us remember Jesus is Lord. 
So let us gladly bow our knee to the one true king. Let us joyfully submit our heart to the one true Lord. Let us come like a lowly child, lose our life, accept last, take up our cross and follow him to whom the winds and waves obey. And yet him who bore our plagues so that he could be our deliverance. This morning when we read Exodus, let us take heed lest we ourselves fall. How soft is your heart? How tender is your conscience? How quickly do you listen and heed the word of the Lord? Are you slow in hearing or are you swift? Every house built on sand will collapse and great will be the fall of it. But let us say, O Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, the sure foundation that is Christ. This morning, See that Yahweh works sovereignly. Yahweh works sovereignly to save his select people who trust in him. And Yahweh does this all for his own glory. In fact, years later, when Joshua brings the people into the promised land, the Gibeonites will meet him and say, we heard reports of what your God did in Egypt. When the Philistines meet Samuel, they say, who will deliver us? No, actually they say, we're in trouble. (laughs) Who will deliver us? from the God who struck the Egyptians with plagues. God makes his name great so that we will trust him and so that we will fear him. Let us pray that he will do that now. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would soften my own heart so that my swift desire will be to follow Jesus as Lord. Help us to rejoice further as Christians today that the saving work that you have begun, you will complete. You did not just call them out of Egypt, you brought them out of Egypt. And so you will bring us out of this world when the King of Kings calls us home. Lord, we need that reminder because there are times that we think the sin that is besetting us cannot be conquered. Sometimes we think that the enemies that oppose God will not be defeated. Remind us, Lord, that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Yes, Satan may roar, but he cannot destroy. Yes, the enemy may imitate, but he cannot conquer. Nothing that we face is too difficult for God, and your arm is not too short to save. We pray, Lord, for things that we have thought impossible. Remind us of the Lord who brings his people out of Egypt. And Lord, I pray also that we will learn like Moses learned in these 10 plagues, that we cannot compromise the word of the Lord in any portion. All that you said had to be followed. There was no negotiating or equivocating. Perhaps someone this morning has thought, that there are portions of scripture they like, but there are others they cannot seem to accept. Give us a humility to trust that your ways are right, even if your thoughts are above our own. And perhaps finally this morning, Lord, someone needs to call out on the name of Jesus to be saved because you do distinguish your people from those who are not your people. No one has to face 
locust and frogs and darkness and blood and hail. No one has to go to hell if they will simply call on the name of the Lord Jesus who took our darkness, who was slain in our place and who lives victoriously. So move people to salvation for the sake of your own name. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.